most of us have all had that experience where we walk up to the counter, or, or maybe we sit down at the table, and we, we look at the menu, and we know we're hungry, and it doesn't take us long. We know exactly what it is that we want. And then the waiter or waitress walks up and says, may I, may I take your order? And uh, you say, yes, yes, please. And you, you give it to him or to her. And then you hear the words that you never want to hear. I'm so sorry. We're all out of that. And that is the moment when life gets real, right? That's the moment where you have to look deep down inside, into the inner recesses of your soul, and determine what kind of a person you really are. Where do you draw the line? When is enough enough? When does cool, calm, and collected uh, get exchanged for white, hot, unrestrained rage? Or maybe just less of a tip. Some hills are worth dying on, right? Some things are worth fighting for. Sometimes there's no question as to whether or not when the moment is when you need to pick up the flag and take that hill. People are passionate about things. Some people are passionate about food. Some people are passionate about fashion. Some people, it's their pets. I don't quite understand that, but it's true. Some people are passionate about the environment or the economy or education or maybe entertainment, social justice, politics, um, uh, personal hy <laughs> hygiene, uh, personal relationships. How do you figure out what are the things that you're going to be passionate about? about, what you're going to get angry about, what you're going to devote your time to, what you're going to spend your money on, your, you devote your life to. How do you determine that? In uh, his great work, The City of God, St. Augustine, he presented the idea that the real problem with the world is, is what he called disordered love. In other words, they, people don't care about the right things, or either that, or they don't care about the right things in the right order. Virtue, or the right way to live, is a, really a function of the way that you love. Augustine wrote this, Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Wow, that is a mouthful. I can't believe I got through that. Okay, so if that's true, then how do you figure out what you should love the most? What matters enough to send your soldiers into battle? For, what matters enough for your kingdom to go to war? Jesus makes answering that question pretty easy in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me and let's read God's word 
together. I'll let, I'll let you sit today. It says this in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, now, now let's skip ahead a few verses. We're going to come back to them in just a few minutes, so don't panic, but let's skip ahead to verse 20. It says this, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay. There you have it. There is no question about it. Out of all the things that Jesus could care about, that he could get accept, uh, upset about, he could get upset about the, the oppression of the Roman rule, or, or maybe the way the coastal towns of Tyre and Sidon were taking advantage of those poor Galileans, and they were growing wealthy from them. Remember that? We talked about that several weeks ago. Or what about the tax collectors that were just robbing people blind? Why didn't he get upset about that? Or what about the warped belief that sick people or poor people must be far more evil than everyone else, because clearly they're being punished by God? Or what about the social inequities of the day, the social problems of the day? Out of so many important things that Jesus could get upset about, here in Mark chapter 11, we finally see the one thing that Jesus finally loses it on. In fact, it's the only time when we see him using his power to do something destructive rather than constructive. Jesus gets hungry. He gets hungry. Maybe Jesus is a little bit more like us than we thought. Now, I don't like figs, but I can relate. When I don't get a meal, I get agitated. Is that what Jesus really cares about? It's really, he's just really just a foodie. Thank God that's not it. And that's all we see here. Then we're missing the point. What happens to the fig tree? That is a parable. It's a parable. It's a teaching moment. It's an object lesson that points to a greater, in fact, in this case, a far, far greater reality. And Peter knew that. And because he knew it, he made sure that Mark knew it when Mark was recording his testimony. And that's why you have Right here, stuck in the middle of this fig tree episode, Jesus stop into Jerusalem. And that's where we see that the fig tree is really just a picture for the epicenter of worship. The one place, the most important place for worship in all of Israel, the temple. Now, Jesus was a human being. He was fully human, in fact, and that means that food did, in fact, matter to him. He needed it. 
but we know that Jesus was also fully divine. He was fully God. And that means that he is going to care about things of ultimate importance. In fact, what Jesus cares about, you can take to the bank that those are the things that are more important than anything else in all existence. So we've got to pay attention to what Jesus cares about. We've got to pay attention to what he gets excited about, what he gets angry about, because those are the things, those are the moments that tell us definitively the things that are absolutely, supremely important. And there's one thing, one thing that is singled out here in our passage today. Take a look at verse 15. Let's read the part that we skipped over. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it into a den of robbers. Matt, uh, Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen that you'll know a tree by its fruit. You can tell what kind of a tree is by looking at what that tree produces. So are, are apples hanging on this thing? Well, then you can probably assume, it's probably safe to say that it's an apple tree. Oranges, orange tree, figs, Probably a fig tree. You can tell what kind of a tree it is. Not only can you tell what type of a tree it is, but you can also tell whether or not it is a good tree or a bad tree. Matthew 7, 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, the fig tree, we know from the passage we just read a few minutes ago, we know that the fig tree wasn't necessarily in season. That happens in late summer or early fall. But the fig tree was in leaf. Did you see that detail in there? It was in leaf. It was springtime, and even though that may not be the time for the, the big crop to show up, there should have been some fruit growing on that thing. It may not have been very big. It may not have been quite ripe, but you could still eat it. Here's a picture of, uh, of our fig tree in our backyard. There it is. Uh, we planted this thing just recently. Actually, Melissa planted this thing. I don't want to have anything to do with figs. I'm not a fig eater. I do not like them. I do not want to be near them. Um, but this is our fig tree this week, all right? We're kind of in springtime. We're, we're actually just a little bit uh, behind where Jesus was in this passage when it comes to time of the year. But you can see there's fruit on it. There's fruit on it. And I am told, I wouldn't know, but I'm told you could eat this. I don't recommend it. It's probably disgusting. But you could eat it, and it won't kill you. That's our backyard. Fig trees, they produce when they're in leaf. Maybe not the bumper crop, but they're producing something. Now, the temple. The temple was supposed to be producing something. Something very, very important. And maybe it wasn't quite the right time for it to be perfectly ripe. 
And maybe it wasn't time for it to be as large or as powerful or as genuine or as passionate as it one day would be. But there should have been something, something there. And instead, what Jesus saw when he got there was quite the opposite of what he should have seen. The temple finds its origin way back to when God first called Israel to be his and his alone. Right at the base of Mount Sinai, he delivered them out of 400 years of bondage in Egyptian, from Egyptian slavery. And God gives them very detailed, very intricate instructions for how this temple was to be constructed. Well, they were en route to the promised land. The temple, it was actually something uh, more like a tent. It was called the tabernacle. And that word tabernacle actually kind of gives away the purpose of the, the, the tabernacle, the temple. It means dwelling place. In verb form, to, to tent or to dwell. It was the place where God would come and he would dwell with his people. He would live with them there. This is where God would break into people's lives and once again become the focal point the center, the primary position in their lives. The tabernacle, the temple, it was about him. It was about God. It began with the tabernacle. Then King David, he purchased the ground and, and planned the creation of a more permanent type of tabernacle. He didn't build it. His son Solomon built it. And he built this thing, and interesting, interestingly enough, this was the exact spot where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a, a testimony of faith and worship. As I said, David's son Solomon built the temple. Then, after hundreds and hundreds of years of failure, failure to worship God the way God had told them to worship, we're told that God removed his presence from the temple. Not only that, the temple in 586 B.C. was destroyed. Destroyed by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar, you may remember that name. Okay, the temple's gone. It's destroyed. Well, how then does Jesus visit the temple after it has been destroyed? Well, this is how. Because after 70 years of Babylonian captivity and the temple being destroyed, Israel was finally freed to return home. And not only were they freed to return home, they were given resources to actually begin rebuilding the temple under the reign of Zerubbabel. Now, this temple... It didn't hold a candle to the one that was Solomon's temple. It wasn't as big. It wasn't as spectacular. In fact, as the foundations were being laid, I think it's in Ezra we read, that some people were celebrating, but those who were older, those who remembered the original temple, it says they wept. But it, at least it was something. We're, we're restoring this, this thing that God had told us to build Later on in 167 BC, the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, when the Syrian army captured Jerusalem. 
the temple that Jesus and his disciples were looking at, that was this temple that was desecrated by the Syrians. Only this temple was now being rebuilt. It was being restored. It was being refurbished. It was even being expanded by a man by the name of Herod the Great. And this was actually an 84-year-long project that began in 20 B.C. And you might say, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of fuss for one building. Well, yes, and that is because this building mattered. And it wasn't so much the fact of it, but it was what it stood for. As we mentioned before, this was the place that stood as a testimony to God's dwelling with his people. It was the place where God's kingdom had broken into the world, the world that had abandoned him, that, the world that said, we don't want your kingdom, we're setting up our own kingdom. In fact, we're setting up many little kingdoms. In fact, every single person on this earth is practically a kingdom unto themselves. This was the place where kingdoms collided. They collided. In the beginning, there was one kingdom, God's kingdom. He designed it. He built it. There wouldn't be anything without it. Not only that, it was a perfect kingdom. There was no need unmet, no desire left unsatisfied. And yet we know from our study in Genesis that people that God created that relied on God for their existence, for their molecules to even hold together, they walked away. They said, we want our own kingdom. We want to do it our way. That didn't go so well. Exchange flowers for thorns. Exchange beauty for ashes. The good life for straining and striving and sweating and stealing and fighting just to get by. The kingdom we had created, it took God, our creator, out of the picture. And in its place, we set up a throne for ourselves. Augustine says, this is where everything went wrong. This is where we first began, quote-unquote, to fail to love what is to be loved. But the temple was God calling us back to himself. The temple is where people came clean and admitted their rebellion. The temple is where people would, would fall on their faces and cry out to God for mercy and look to him as their one and only hope. The temple is where sacrifices would be made to visualize the gravity of our sin, the high price that was needed to pay for it, and God's willingness to forgive. The temple is where human beings might take themselves off of the throne and worship him as they were meant to from the very beginning. When Solomon dedicated the temple back in 1 Kings 8, he prayed that God's eyes might be opened and his ears opened, that ears, the ears of God might listen there to the prayers of his people. That was supposed to be happening in the temple 
people looking to God, people calling out to God. In fact, not just the people of Israel, even foreigners, visitors that came there. This is what uh, Solomon asked God in 1 Kings 8.41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, in parentheses, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name the temple was designed as this, for the sole purpose of being the place where God's kingdom might collide with the false kingdoms that people have set up on this earth. It's created that they might see him for who he really is, that they might renounce their allegiance to their own old rebellious ways and humbly submit to God as they seek him in prayer, as they experience his grace and his forgiveness and worship him as their king. And what Jesus saw when he stepped onto the temple grounds was anything but what the temple was designed for. He walked into the courtyard, the outer courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. And rather than seeing people there praying and being taught and worshiping, he saw money being tossed back and forth. He, saw, he heard squawking and, and cooing and bleeding animals at the, as they were trading hands, being bought and being sold. He saw people arguing. He heard coins jingling in purse bags. He heard vendors calling out for customers. But you know, it wasn't just the commotion that was the problem that was disturbing. It was the hearts of the people that enraged him. They were hearts that had seized on the opportunity to turn a place of worship and reliance on God into a money-making, people-cheating machine. They capitalized on people's desires to be made right with God. People, people have a guilty conscience. They know something needs to change. And, and, and the priests saying, yeah, come here. Help us fill our pockets. When people came to give money in the temple, they couldn't just give any money. They had to give Jewish coins or, 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 or coins from Tyre. Those were the kinds that could be offered. So you had money changing tables set up all around. And people came and they had to get the right kind of money to give the right kind of money to the temple. And that was all done under the watchful eyes of the former high priest, Annas, and his son-in-law, the current high priest, Caiaphas. Together they ran the temple business, determining which merchants could sell their goods and change the money in there. And of course, they were taking very, very uh, generous percentages of everything being sold. Extortion and abuse was taking place in the temple. So, you want to be made right with God? You say you've made some mistakes out there. Okay, well, come here. We'll help you get rid of that guilt. We'll help you do it. Yes, the prices might be a little steep. We understand that. But can you really put 
a price on the salvation of your soul. Can you? Rather than being out an outpost for God's kingdom, rather than being a place that educated and called people back to relying on and worshiping God, the temple had been transformed into an engine that fed that same self-reliance, that same greed that first showed up all the way back in Genesis 3. God, we don't need you. We can do this on our own. We're going to make ourselves great on our own. Watch how we're going to do it. What does Jesus care about? What's worth fighting for? What is of premier importance in the universe? It's the sincere worship of God and God alone. The only thing that's big enough to unhinge Jesus' anger and that brings about this clash of kingdoms here in Mark 11, it's that. So we read that he drove out those who bought and sold, that he overturned the tables of the money changers. He's pulling out the stools that the pigeon sellers were sitting on. He stopped traffic, prevented anyone from bringing anything through the temple. And then he says, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Robbers normally hid out in the hills. They hid in the dark places. They hid in the caves, in the alleyways. But here it is. Here they are, out in broad daylight, in the last place where they should have been. Psalm 69.9 says, zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what the disciples remembered the first time Jesus did this in the temple. Back in John chapter 2, verse 17. You want to know what Jesus is passionate about, what he is zealous about. He's passionate about what goes on in God's house. He's passionate about worship. So you might be thinking, wow, okay. We better be really careful what we do in this building. Wow. We don't want a clash of kingdoms to take place here in our fellowship hall or worship center, sanctuary, whatever we call this thing. We don't want that to happen. Well, that's where we got to realize that this building isn't the temple. It's not, the, it's not this. It's not the drywall. It's not the, I think we're constructed mostly out of wood here. It's not the, the wood. This isn't the temple. I don't know if you're, you're aware of it, but this is, this is what they call Pentecost Sunday. Today. Today, May 23rd, Pentecost Sunday. 50 days after the Jewish Passover. 40 days from when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's when the disciples all got together in a house. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is when the temple went from being a place on a map to being a place inside of every heart of every single person who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and looks to him alone for their forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. That is a monumental reality. <laughs> if you have placed your trust in Jesus, then you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your heart is now the place where God has set up His kingdom. It's the place where He sits on the throne. It's the place where He alone should be worshipped and honored above all others. And don't forget, that's what God cares about most. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. When Jesus cursed the fig tree for not producing, he was giving the disciples a picture of how God cursed the temple for its failure to produce worship. In a matter of hours, the fig tree would wither. It would die all the way down to the roots. Forty years later, the temple would be raised to the ground by Roman soldiers. Last week, we took notice Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Do you remember this if you were with us? Remember, he wept. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The priests and keepers of the temple, they had lost sight of the fact that true salvation, true peace, was found in coming humbly before God. Jesus' sorrow turned to anger when he stood face to face with the desecration of the very place that should have been calling people back to God, pointing them to their one and only hope, and the one who would very soon make the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. This was the battle worth fighting for. This was the hill worth dying on. Mark eleven eighteen tells us, that after Jesus did this, the chief priests, the scribes, they began seeking ways to destroy him. So when you think about it, in this way, Jesus was not only declaring to us the hill that is worth dying on, he was intentionally putting in motion the events that would bring about his death. The death that would be the ultimate clash of kingdoms where God's kingdom would come crashing in to this fallen world and make a way for rebellious people to be forgiven, made right with him, for us to cross over into his forever kingdom. And let me ask all of us, if, if, if we are now God's temple, his spirit it lives within us. What does God see when he looks into our hearts? Does he see hearts that are surrendered to him, calling out to him, praising him? 
Or does he see hearts that look a little bit more like the temple that Jesus stepped into? There was a clash of kingdoms. That clash continues today. It still takes place in the temple. It takes place in the temple of our hearts. It takes place every time you do battle with the desires of this old, fallen kingdom. Every time you decide who you're going to trust. Every time that you have opportunity to give in to fear. Every time that you have to consider how you're going to deal with the hard things of life. Are you going to self-medicate? Are you going to take just another glass of wine, as many as it takes, to just forget about this? Are you going to drown all these hard things out with maybe some loud music or maybe a certain type of entertainment? This takes place every time. No one seems to be watching, and we have an opportunity to click into that search bar and type anything that we want. Or when we have the chance to flip the channels and no one else sees that screen. It takes place every time we must consider what words are going to form on the tip of our tongue. The clash of kingdoms is continually taking place on the battleground of our hearts and the stakes are high. What will be your first love is the ultimate question. Where will God sit on the priority list of your life? Do you not know, Paul wrote, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy And you are that temple. There's a hill that's worth dying on. There's something that you and I should be more passionate about than anything else. There's a battle that's worth fighting. And that is the worship of God and God alone that should originate right here as the Holy Spirit says, do it. Do it. Do it. Where's your heart today? Where's my heart? When the disciples mentioned about the fig tree to Jesus, this is how he responded. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, there's a lot more in in there than we have time for this morning, but let me just say this. The old kingdom tells us that we need to believe in ourselves, 
that we need to do things our own way, that we need to maybe lie, steal, cheat, go outside of God's design to, to, to get ahead or to, to make things happen or to get the most out of life. The truth is that there is something infinitely more powerful than any lame attempt that we can make on our own. It's God's power. It's his way. It's his kingdom. It's time for us to place our faith in him rather than ourselves. It's time to let go of our creative, maybe, maybe sometimes even devious ways of getting things done and call upon him in prayer and stand firmly upon what he's already done. It's time to stop looking at each other as ways to get ahead. We do that sometimes, don't we? Ways to get ahead. It's time to start forgiving each other when they keep us from getting ahead, when they offend us, when they tear us down, when they don't <laughs> enhance our lives the way we would like them to. It's time to start trusting that our good Father in heaven will meet every one of our needs just as Jesus has met our greatest need. May Jesus Christ rule this day in every one of our hearts. May his kingdom come. May his will be done. Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. Lord, when he visited this planet, he truly shook things up. Kingdoms collided. People were angry. And Jesus boldly, courageously, obediently march towards the cross, Lord, that people in this room, myself included, might see their need for you, their need for forgiveness, that we might look to Jesus and by his sacrifice be washed clean, made new, that we might step out of this old, destructive futile, worthless kingdom and step into yours. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, our hearts are temples for you. May they worship you. You and you alone. May they worship authentically and genuinely and wholeheartedly. Lord, may our worship, even right now, be honoring to you. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.